one day you will stand before the head, the real head of the church, and give an account of your stewardship. It won't be about worship preferences or denominational affiliations, skill in defining theological nuances, organizational charts, or staff positions. On that day, the most important question will be, did we make the best decision for the sake of God's church and advancement of His kingdom? Hey, podcasters. Welcome to Leaders in Living Rooms by CDF Capital. I'm your host, Sean Morgan, bringing you access and insights to leaders and their stories. Hey, y'all, I can't wait to share this episode with Jim Tomberlin. He's become an incredible wise sage in my life. He's become a great friend. You want to know somebody who has access and insights to leaders, to church leaders and their stories. It's Jim Tomberlin. I mean, anytime somebody labels you guru, like Jim is labeled the multi-site guru, it makes you want to pause and listen. Jim's got some great wisdom. He's just updated with Warren Bird, his book, Better Together. I can't wait to share this story with you. So let's go. Welcome, everybody. I'm here in the home of Jim Tomberlin in beautiful Colorado. We've uh, just had a great time getting caught up. We've known each other for a few years, and it's an honor to be able to bring this podcast to you and a little life and a little leadership from Jim. And one of the things that you've known now uh, this month is that Jim and Warren have re-released their book. And Jim, tell us a little bit about what spurred that on. What do you, what's going on in your life? What caused you to update your 2012 Better Together with Warren Bird? Well, it's great to be here with you too, Sean, and um, share this uh, conversation with you. Thank you so much for your interest in this. Uh, our our uh, new edition that has just been released now this in the month of August uh, really came out of a conversation, a phone call we received about a year ago from our publisher saying, would you like to... Uh, we'd like to publish your book in paperback. We mm-hmm. think there's a growing need for this book, and we'd like to make it even more accessible. Would you be willing for us to release this in a paperback format? We replied and said we would on one condition, that you would allow us to uh, add some additional uh, research to this and, uh, and up- send updates, and they were very glad to do that. So you originally have this book out, uh, probably written in about 2011 and 2012, copyrighted in 2012. Fast forward eight years, you've got that plus all of the wisdom. And, and I always tell people, you know, it's not, it's not knowledge or experience that helps. It's applied mm-hmm. knowledge and experience wow. that becomes wisdom. And so you now have that multiplied by eight years times two people. You guys have seen so much in church. Give us just a snapshot. I think it was a brilliant move to make the make the additional research. So give us a snapshot of some of the insider information that is is fresh and new and current and relevant. Well, when we wrote the book eight and a half years ago, it was to validate that there was a new kind of merger on the scene mm-hmm. that was transforming the church culture. Um, and uh, we wanted to give some language to that uh, process. Uh, it was the first book to ever be written on church mergers. And um, anything, everything written before that it was pretty much a conclusion that mergers was a failed strategy. Uh, it was Sort of a rescue strategy. Regis- and um, it was kind of a lose-lose or a, or a win-lose strategy that was n- not very appealing to most uh, churches. 
But we were seeing a different kind of merger eight and a half years ago, primarily driven, as we document in the book, by the multi-site church movement. Uh, it was a, sort of an unintended but good consequence of this movement. Right. Now, we gave some language to mergers. We identified different kinds of mergers. Uh, and um, that was our purpose. And um, fast forward eight and a half years ago, later, that our book has been a steady, slow but steady selling book because mergers have been increasing even mm-hmm. since we published the first book. And so when we were given the chance to update, uh, we jumped at that opportunity to do that. We did a survey again, a nationwide survey last fall uh, to uh, churches who had done mergers. We had a lot of organizations that helped promote that. We got nearly a thousand responses. Incredible. It gave us a lot of additional data. We um, updated a lot of the stories that were in the original book. Mm-hmm. We um, have added a bunch of new stories. We've also developed I've developed a number of templates and tools over the last eight and a half years to help churches better facilitate this conversation. But here's a really great takeaway, Sean, is yeah. that uh, as we, re- as we re- reread through the book, the good news is we didn't have to repent of anything we wrote in the first book. That's incredible. <laughs> and uh, we were like, you know, this was amazing. We did a, we we're really pleased with what we wrote. And yes. eight years later, it still rings true. It's still and sound validated. advice. Yeah. And, uh, but we wanted to uh, build on that. And yeah. so uh, that's what we've done. Well, we'll dive into a little bit more about the book and some things, but it's Better Together by Jim Tomberlin and Warren Bird. Making church mergers work, and I love what you expanded guys expanded and updated, expanded and updated, and I love what you guys have done. It, it rings true to me that this idea of with a paradigm shift, this is not a lose lose situation, but there is an opportunity here for this to be a win win situation, and the way of of bringing hope into the story of a rising tide raising all the ships in in that equation. So. Um, Hats off to you guys for changing that narrative. And most of the churches I work with have been involved in one point or another in a merger or an acquisition. And almost all those stories, it's it's like a form of church planting where there's a renewed sense of vision and calling and a community being reached and the gospel really being fueled in that way. So um, you sort of have uh, been on an interesting journey. You've been a consultant, but and you've been a lead pastor, and you've also been pulled into the story of a local church. So this whole season of life has just been a little bit crazy. You're a hard guy to keep tabs on. Give us an update personally. Like, what have the last eight years been like? Well, I would say the last 15 years uh, has been my last chapter where I left uh, serving on the staff at Willow Creek Community Church, right. where I came there to really develop the whole multi-site model, mm-hmm. which uh, as an early pioneer here in Colorado Springs at my church at Women Valley Chapel is what got me invited to come there to Willow Creek to develop that model in the year 2000. Uh, by the year 2005, we launched four additional campuses at Willow Creek, and I was getting calls from around the country uh, from churches. Could you come talk to us about how you do multi-site? And so um, that became very apparent that that was my next season, uh, that I'd really accomplished what God had brought me there to do at Willow Creek. And uh, this was going to be my next chapter, I thought maybe a few years uh, to, to do that. Um, as I started consulting churches in multi-site model, I was seeing a lot of mergers occur. Warren Bird, my colleague at Leadership Network, called me, uh, oh, I guess around 2009 and said, Jim, are you seeing a lot of mergers in your, in your work? And I said, yeah, I am, as a matter of fact. He said, so are we at Leadership Network. We ought to write a book about it. God is doing something new. 
And, uh, and so sure enough, a couple of years later, we published this book and it really has been a, a, a guide uh, and we wanted it to be a manual guideline, a guidebook mm-hmm. to help churches through the merger conversation. I continued to, to do consulting uh, for 15 years. I started, when I left Willow Creek, I started a company called Multisite Solutions. It has, you know, been a, a, a fun ride. It helped a lot of churches over the years uh, uh, as a multi-site church consultant. As I, 15 years later, a good friend and strategic partner, Tony Morgan, uh, at the Unstuck Group, uh-huh. said, Jim, uh, why don't you come join us? You know, we were very complimentary in our uh, helping each other. Uh, they, they would help churches get healthy so they could multi-site. I would help uh, churches that wanted to multi-site who needed to get healthy. They needed to see Tony. And so anyway, we had this kind of mutually beneficial referral yeah. Ministry uh, relationship model. going yep. on. And um, so two years ago, I said, let's do it. So I merged my company with Tony and the Unstuck mm-hmm. Group. I continue to serve uh, as a uh, strategist and consultant with, with the Unstuck Group. But I'm also, um, one of my clients had said about three years ago, Jim, could you come in and just be our chief of staff for an interim period of time yeah. uh, in Miami? And so um, I said, let's do it this way. I'll do it part-time interim for six months. Uh, churches is a church with 17 locations, about 10,000 people. I committed to six months. Three years later, I'm still doing it. So let let me just interject. I got three questions that have come up in this, and I'm I'm just itching to ask them all. But one of them is, as a consultant myself and and a coach, there are times where you have that conversation where somebody says, "Can you do more here?" Um, what was it? So that's not the first time somebody asked you if you can be involved more there, whether it's as an employee or increasing your consulting presence there. Um, what was it about that church, that story or, or whatever that you felt God was calling you mm-hmm. to say yes? Because I know you you said yes, obviously, but you probably said no a hundred times before that in other a situations. A few times along the way have invited to, could you just join our team? Um, I've been in pastoral ministry now, Sean, for 40 years. And, um, and even when Tony invited me to join, merge my company with, with them, I think the appeal there was, I've loved running a business, starting a business, leading it, growing it. Uh, I'm kind of ready to hand that off to somebody else, but I still want to keep serving the local church. And when this church that I felt a very heart connection with in Miami invited me to consider joining them, it took me six months or more to really process, do I really want to get back into that hands-on role in a local church? And uh, I finally decided to do that. Mm-hmm. And, and I was let, letting, releasing my, most of my business to Tony and his team so I could let that go and, uh, and be more selective with just a handful of clients and primarily with this client. And getting my feet back into the local church beyond just the 50,000-foot level, but more in the hands-on and so for the last three years, uh, it has been very rewarding for me to do that. And so um, I'm, it, it was a good decision. What have you found that's been most rewarding about being back in a local church leadership circle week after week? You know, as a consultant, all you the best you can do is give people's advice. And I'd say maybe two-thirds of the time churches would listen to my advice and, okay. and usually did better. <laughs> and uh, another third of the time that I— they didn't. And so uh, you just have to learn to let go of that. And um, But so I think one of the rewarding parts now is that uh, I'm not just advising or consulting. I'm 
helping to make the make decisions for the church, leading the church to make decisions, and leveraging my forty years of what I've have had a good forty year run. Yeah, I've had you know I've been a pastor in several churches, good, bad, and ugly. I still love the local church, and I I have a, still have health and energy. I want to leverage my learnings to help the the church I'm helping now. When you, I think you said 15 years ago, when you started consulting, you you were at uh, coming out of a season at Willow before that, been a lead pastor at Woodman Valley Chapel, and uh, you have the position, especially in Willow, was 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 a very structured organization. So you have positional authority, and then you step into coach consultant, and you no longer have positional authority. Uh, how do you still have that influence that, like you said, somewhere around two-thirds of the time is a difference-making conversation? It's difference-making insight for those leaders in that ministry when you're not the boss. I think what was helpful in the early days of my consulting was that I had uh, three great church experiences under in my experience mm-hmm. uh, of— um, leading a church internationally, of uh, growing a church from a few hundred to several thousand in a, within a decade, and then being at Willow Creek. And so when I left Willow Creek and, and having a very successful uh, run there for five years, four campuses, you know, really transforming Willow from a monocyte to a multi-site church, now they're at eight locations, um, all that experience was, uh, gave me credibility for a couple of years as a consultant, as not someone who was a student of church health and growth, but someone who was, had been a practitioner in some very high-profile, successful churches. Now, that was only, I knew that that would only be good for about two years, maybe, mm-hmm. uh, and I needed to have some success as a consultant helping significant churches succeed in this model. Yeah. God's grace and favor was on me on that and those endeavors, and, and I got that kind of credibility. Uh, so that that did give me a lot of uh, positional credibility, even though I wasn't on the staff. Yeah, uh, it gave it gave strength to my voice. Absolutely. Well, and you are you have an outstanding voice into church and leadership and ministry, but certainly mergers, acquisitions, and and multi site. So thanks for going on that journey. Uh, you talked about two things that I want to revisit. You said forty years in ministry, which um, we there's so, so much gravity in that. Um, We've seen highs and lows of, of ministry um, just in matter of years. You see highs and lows, and you see the underbelly of the church. And, um, and then we've certainly seen people not last 40 years um, and not end well. Um, people we know, people we love and, and care about. So uh, the weight of that and having just, um, just had lunch in your home with your wife, uh, I just want to express like just a profound amount of gratitude and respect for a, a ministry run that um, is where it's at today. That's absolutely remarkable. So thank you for that. Um, but you also said something that's tied to that, that is your love for the local church. And I, I think anybody who's been around a church, certainly church leadership, has had to ask some questions um, about Christ has this incredible pure love, but the church can seem so ugly sometimes. And so talk to me a little bit about just the source for that love for the local church that you still have. Well, I've, Sean, I would say, first of all, I'm just profoundly grateful for the 
grace of God that was shown to me as a rebellious teenager <laughs> in the 60s and the transformation of my life I've not quite recovered from yet. So yeah. I'm grateful for that. Um, the path I was on and the path that I, my life turned out, the contrast is so dr- dramatic and vivid that um, I, there's a great sense of gratitude in that. Um, the My colleague Warren Bird and I both have talked numerous times about how we both have been in church ministry all of our adult life and 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 uh, seen the good, the bad, and the ugly, but we still actually love the local church. And uh, and I want to continue serving the local church th- till I can't. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, I think there's a sense that uh, I, I, I believe what the Bible teaches, that humanity is broken and in mm-hmm. need of redemption. And so I, I've always had expectation that local churches are going to be are for broken people. And where you have a broken people, hurting people, hurt people, as you know. And so, so that happens to pastors and, yeah. and church members uh, along the way who can become very jaded, very disillusioned because of the way humans can be at times. It only highlights to me what the Bible's always taught. We need redemption. We need forgiveness. We need healing. And, they, and I do still believe the local church is that agent for healing, for yeah. salvation, for, for grace and forgiveness and mercy um, in our models in Jesus. So, you know, I, I remember when... Uh, there are times when church members call me and say, Jim, I I feel so disillusioned with my church. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm so disappointed in my pastor or my leaders or whatever for what they've done or whatever. And I have to always say, I have to go back to the words of uh, Jesus to, uh, or the words of the disciples to Jesus when everybody was turning away from Jesus at a point in his ministry. And Jesus turned to them and said, "Um, are are you going to leave too? And um, I believe it was Peter that said, Jesus where else would we go? You have the words of life. And so you have to, uh, pastors, even good pastors and leaders and church leaders are going to disappoint you. But uh, Jesus is the one who is the giver of life. And so you have to kind of go back to that. That's uh, so good. That's so rich. Thanks for sharing. A question, um, this, I want to go back to the book for a second. Um, The book is the only one that your publisher, I think, is publishing this, this year or in this season, this, uh, you know, um, coronavirus, in what ways has coronavirus affected in your, and some of this is, is probably after your research is, is done, but what signs and what sort of predictions do you have about the season post coronavirus and how that will affect church mergers? We submitted our final review of our manuscript a month before COVID. When it hit, we asked our publisher, you know, could we have one more round at our manuscript just to incorporate this, you know, pandemic uh, and the impact of it from what we can tell at this moment. And they agreed that, yes, well, so they, they allowed us to add a few thoughts about mergers in light of this pandemic and projections. Um, and so we did that. Um, they came back a couple months later and said, you know, Jim, uh, Warren, we really are, are um, pleased with the book, and, but we're not releasing any publishers, any, any books this fall, except for one, yours, because it's so timely. Now, um, I think what I, what, what I have concluded after what, is, what have we learned through COVID and how is this a change in anything we've written in our book? It's what we've seen in a lot of other areas, the same in the multi-site movement. COVID is only accelerating what was already happening. 
And so uh, a lot of churches, and we just, you know, we demonstrate this in the literature, in the research, about 25% of the churches uh, in America today, this is from our research with Tony Morgan and the Unstuck Group, are on life support or preservation mode. They were that way before the COVID hit, which means they probably could have coasted for another few more years with an inevitable, they're going to go out of business, shut down, unless they have some kind of intervention. Uh, COVID will only uh, accelerate that. Uh, the COVID is only is 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 only highlighting and magnifying mm-hmm. what was good, bad, and ugly in in the local churches all across the country. And so, um, in a lot of ways, like Macy's, uh, Pennies, J.C. Pennies, they they were already on their last fumes before COVID. Should have already made the decision to pivot, shut down, or whatever. Piv- uh, COVID forced that. We'll see a lot of churches in that same mode, and we are seeing that already. We've had a number of mergers all happen virtually in the last three months. Wow. If you're, uh, let's let's define a couple roles here that you talk about in the book, but you have sort of uh, uh, two categories of churches in a merger. So describe those, and then I've got a follow-up question. Well, in our first book, we described some of the language. Every merger is like a dance. Uh, in a dance, there's one that leads and one that follows, yeah. or one that leads and one that joins. Uh, and so... Uh, that's the first kind of definition of understanding a merger. There's there's not two equals yes. coming together. It's a rare situation where it's like a true marriage. We do talk, there are some, but in, in the most part, even in those, one leads, the other follows. So uh, that's the first kind of descriptor of how to think about a, mar- yeah. a, a merger. So lead church, joining church. So if, if you're talking to a listener right now who has seen a continued deceleration of their ministry because of the last uh, season, four months here of coronavirus, four or five months of coronavirus, um, and they think a merger might be something that's viable for their ministry, um, there's not enough of you to go around. What sort of thoughts do they need to be processing if they think they might be a joining church? Well, that's a great question. And eight years ago or nine years ago, when we did our first book and our survey, uh, we discovered then that the majority of churches who initiate the conversation is not the lead church, which is the perception is it's this big, huge church that's gobbling up or acquiring yes. these struggling churches, just the opposite. The, the, in, in our latest research, affirmed that again, that uh, it's typically the joining church that starts or initiates the conversation for one of several reasons. And this is what the, the latest research especially pulled out. First of all, it's often it's because they're in financial trouble. And they recognize we're not going to make it on this if we continue down this path. Uh, sometimes uh, it's we, um, we also realize we're stuck and we're, we don't know how to serve our community in this season. What, did, what we did in the past doesn't work and we're on a slow spiral downward. That was kind of the initial reasons. But now what we discover in our latest research is uh, many times we're discovering this is, this is becoming a major uh, strategy for church planters. Uh, 20% of, of all of our, the mergers that in our survey, church planters benefited from a merger. You have a, you have a stable church, a declining church, a, church, a pastor who's retiring, looking mm-hmm. for a successor. That's another uh, new uh, ingredient coming out. Looking for a pastor— that uh, And so there's a church planter meeting in a school looking for a facility. 
I'm a retiring pastor with a facility looking for a successor. Mm-hmm. That's happening. Yeah. And so the question you asked was, what st- what is their step? Yeah. So if you're thinking you might be a joining church, what are your first couple steps? Who do you talk to? You, do you talk with your team? Do you talk with your elders? Do you call a Jim Tomberlin? Do you call a Tony Morgan? Do you pick up this book? Typically, we see it starts with with a with a pastor of one church in a relationship with another pastor of another church. So there's an, there's might be an existing relationship. There's an existing already. relationship. Sometimes it starts there. There's okay. a friendship. There is a kinship in philosophy of ministry, or right. there may be totally different styles of ministry, but there's a friendship or a relationship. Sometimes it happens. Now, twenty percent of mergers are initiated by a third party, usually a denominational or okay. network leader okay. who knows both churches. They're like-minded. And that yeah. person either takes the initiative to say, you know, you might consider, would you consider joining with this other church as, yeah. one of, as an option for you? Uh, or they'll go to, the, uh, to a lead church and say, would you be open to adopting, acquiring, you know, uh, absorbing this church? And so that, more and more that's happening. That wasn't happening 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Denominational leaders were more resistant to church mergers. So let's talk about resistance to church mergers, whether you're a joining church leader, a denominational or network leader, or a leading church leader. If your first reaction is resistance to the suggestion of a merger, how, how should they react to that? Well, this decision to merge, especially for the joining church leadership, yeah. who will struggle the most with the idea of merging with another. This is their child, their baby, their but they poured their life, uh, mm-hmm. blood, sweat, and tears into. And nobody, no church leader wakes up one, every morning thinking, boy, one day we'll get to merge with another church. Right. Uh, and so this is a, one of the most difficult decisions for church leadership to make, to join another church. And there's a lot of things to think through. And, and, um, and so I often share something along the line with, especially the joining church leadership, who will struggle the most with this okay. decision. Um, for those church elders or board members who have the awesome responsibility of overseeing their church, one day you will stand before the head, the real head of the church, and give an account of your stewardship as church leaders. On that day, God's opinion is the only one that really matters. It won't be about worship preferences or denominational affiliations, skill in defining theological nuances, organizational charts or staff positions or facility uh, ownership. On that day, the most important question will be, did we make the best decision for the sake of God's church in the advancement of his kingdom? Wow, that's so good. Is that phrase, is that writing in the book? Yes. So um, you guys outline 28 different new findings in mergers and acquisitions, and I'd love to hear just what surprised you? You have all this data at your fingertips, a thousand respondents, uh, one of the most amazing brains in church ministry, Warren Bird, digging through this. What surprised you? Sean, uh, a lot of what came out of our la- latest survey was confirming of what we discovered in the first survey t- eight years ago, but, but accelerated mm-hmm. and uh, increased. Uh, for example, um, we know today that a little over 40% of all multi-site campuses have come as a result of a merger. Eight years ago, it was about a third. So we're seeing growth in that. Yeah, so the, the multi-site movement is, not, is, is increasing in its 
um, merge, you know, growing through mergers. Mm-hmm. So that was that confirmed what we saw eight years ago, and mm-hmm. it, it just continued. But here was a big breakthrough or a big uh, aha was twenty uh, percent of church planters are obtaining their a facility. Uh, permanent facility through a merger in the planting phase of the church. Yeah. And in wow. there, when they, you know, they're in a rented facility, yeah. school or YMCA or something mm-hmm. like that. And they're looking for a permanent location. 20% of church planters are finding that facility through a merger and not only, uh, getting a facility, but growing their, you know, attaining a lot of people with it. And at the end of the day, a merger, the, the greatest asset of a, of a merger isn't the building or facility. Mm-hmm. It's the people. That, that come yeah, with it, you know, church. <laughs> and so, um, so that, that, um, that was a, a big aha. Uh, we saw that 39% of churches that do mergers are using mergers as a planting or replanting strategy. So we, what we thought initially was a multi-site or just survival kind of motivation in the last 10 years, we're seeing a huge, uh, this is one way we could be multiplying. This is part of multiplication strategy. And, uh, and planting and replanting church. Because at the yeah. end of the day, when, you, uh, when a joining church joins you, you're rebirthing it again, and it's like a, it's like a, start, a start over, and, and with health, with, health, with mm-hmm. a healthy DNA and resources and Absolutely. all. Absolutely. So it's a, it's a planting strategy or a replanting strategy. Um, we, we're seeing... Tri- uh, clearly, a growth in denominations now are seeing mergers as an asset, both to not only to their declining churches or struggling churches, uh, but also uh, as a way for their strong, growing churches to, you know, increase their impact. You know, th- through the multi-site model, they can. Um, uh, every denomination has the majority, even non-denominational churches. Eighty percent of them are plateau dead or dying. Mainline, as well as. Evangelical. Okay, so we have to address the topic then. Are denominations inhibiting mergers because of denominational sort of like, you know, pigeonhole kind of thinking, like this church can only be a part of another church that's that meets these qualifications that maybe are not the most relevant to the health of that church? Some are, and this really, that your your question really gets down to the local level, at local and state level. Some local and state levels are very hard line or rigid and they're not going to, you know, allow that to happen outside mm-hmm. of their, their movement or network or denomination. Others are very, um, uh, Hey, what's best for the kingdom? Where can we, you know, what's best for this community? And that, that really varies from association or network yeah. or, or conference or whatever. Uh, some are more open and some are not. The denominations can either be an asset or a liability to right. this merger, depending yeah. on what their dashboard is. If their dashboard is the more churches we have on the rolls, the better we look yeah. and feel. Then they're going to inhibit. Then they're going to be against mergers. And that's where it was 10 plus years ago. If they see, you know what, it's really not about how many churches we have. It's how many disciples we're making, uh, how many people we're seeing come to faith, how many baptisms we're seeing. And if, if I have 100 churches under my supervision as a superintendent or a director of missions, uh, and two of them merge, one one de- declining with a healthy one, and now I only have ninety nine churches, but it, they're healthier. That's a better metric. That's a better metric. Yeah. And so more and more ch- denominations are seeing this is an asset, not a liability. Yeah. They were the same. There was the same attitude towards multi site churches initially, and now every denomination, mainline as well as evangelical as uh, um, and non denominational churches. 
there, there are strong multi-site mega churches in all those streams. And, but most of, but most of the churches in those streams are also in decline. You mentioned something about succession in this, and you know I think it's it's fair to say that roughly half the pastors in America are within a decade of retirement. Yes, um, in in round numbers, which is a staggering statistic. And you know I've heard people consider a lead pastor job and choose to go be a planter, and 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 I heard things like, well, it's you know it's easier to give birth than it is to raise the dead, kind of thinking. Mm-hmm. But there's this there's this new sense of hope in that um, there is a succession crisis. How do mergers and acquisitions help address that? Go into a little bit more detail of what is actually going on in the merger that addresses an aging pastor who's done or near done and a younger pastor who may or may not be a church planter moving in. And I've seen that in my own uh, coaching practice. I've seen it multiple times. So I'm really interested to learn a little bit of what, what you would consider to be the, the highlights and details from how that happens. Well, Sean, you're right on. And we're seeing exactly, that's a lot of research showed us that. We know more specifically what you said, 12% of senior pastors change churches every year. There's, there's 320,000 Protestant churches in America. So 12% of that, that's 30,000. Like 30, yeah, 30, 40,000, 40, yeah pastors that are going to change every year. Yeah. On top of that, 40% of senior pastors are within a decade of retirement. Now, we're also seeing a decline of young pastors coming into ministry. The seminaries are in decline. Less young men and women are coming out of the seminaries right. to, to want to lead a church. And so we're, there's a major pastor um, shortage on the horizon coming. Mergers work the best— when that joining church um, enthusiastically braces the mission, the vision, the philosophy of that lead church. Mm-hmm. Uh, when that happens, then there's, there's a great outcome. Now, there's a lot of conversation negoti- uh, navigating that conversation. That's where you need a third party to help with that. But, um, but it's, uh, it's, it, it, in a lot of ways, it is giving a, re- a rebirth to mm-hmm. that um, to that joining church. Matter of fact, that we talk about, that's one of the four models. Rebirth, adoption, marriage, ICU. I'm going to paint a picture for a situation that I've seen a number of times. And so I think it's, it's relatively fair to say that uh, there are often people in ministry that um, are, are, are struggling with, with keeping or even just saying that they have uh, the level of passion they should have. But Oftentimes, people in their 50s and 60s in a lead pastor role don't imagine that there's a, a, a job market for them, that there's a lot of people looking for another lead pastor like them. And so they can cling to the role they've got, right? The lead role, decent salary, um, even though the ministry isn't thriving. And oftentimes, depending on their own personal financial situation, that church can can be in decline to the point of really being that ICU situation. Um, I believe the more we can talk about this and bring insight and perspective and even opportunity hunting in this situation, there's a way to separate the employment of the lead pastor, which is tied to their financial security, mm-hmm. but with a burnout factor or a loss of passion often means the ministry is declining. So is there a way to sort of 
unbundle this and look at mergers where you've got fresh vision, you've got, it doesn't necessarily have to always mean younger, but you've got leadership coming in with energy, you've got ministry momentum. How can the merger, and this is not a car, uh, you know, across the board way to solve this, but how can a merger um, help in these situations? Well, this is how I got into succession coaching, helping churches through the merger conversation. Because in usually the first, the very first question you have to answer, and we've identified 25 distinct questions or issues that every merger has to address. Okay. The very first one is what's going to happen to the the senior pastor or lead pastor of the joining church? If you can't solve address that question, the two pastors mm-hmm. or the two the pastor and board, then there's no need to waste any more time going forward. So you have to decide what's the first, what's going to happen to me if I'm the joining church pastor and I join your church, Sean, lead my congregation to become a part of your church. Is there a role for me? And your response as a lead pastor should be, what is it you want, you need and want? Mm -hmm. So I ended up doing a lot of succession coaching with that joining pastor. Like, well, what is it you, that would be my role as as the consultant, John Smith here. What would, what is it you need? What is it you want and need? And more importantly, what does your wife need? Now, again, it depends on what age they are. If they're, if they're retirement age, uh, you know, I just would like to, um, you got to figure out what is it they would want to do. Yeah. And that's what we do in succession coaching anyway. So how do you, it, it's been my experience that church leaders are often um, feel funny talking about money. And sometimes business, the business side of deals are, are very easy in a business environment because it's always about money. And then you bring it into ministry and money is still important factor in all of these, but oftentimes it's never talked about. So how do you help them get brutally honest to answer that question about what do you want and what do you need? This is what I, what I love about being a third party, neutral third party, where I can have the conversations with both churches about that if I say to the joining church board, look, if you stay on this path, you're going to go out of business. I'm not saying this because I have any vested interest in this, but if I'm, if, if I'm the lead pastor saying that to the joining church, then it feels, it sounds self-serving. It does. So as a third party, I can say, look, you're on this path that's going to end bad, most likely, if you stay on it, or you have a chance to choose your destiny and turn, you know, have a new chapter, not a, not a death here. Yeah. So I can say that. Now, secondly, a lot of pastors stay in their church too long or for the wrong reasons because they don't have the financial security afterwards. Yeah. There's nothing wrong for them. To, for, we all have a—there's nothing uh, immoral to say, I, I'd like to be able to retire with some security or whatever, or provide for my spouse or whatever, my family. And so many times, pastors, to your point, are, and I've had numerous conversations over the years— where the pastor never brought it up to the board because right. they felt it was, you know, not spiritual or not right. And the board never thought, and the boards often think, I guess he doesn't need anything because he's never asked. Never, never talked and about it's neither, it. It's not that either one, we're, we're trying to hurt each other. And, and so, so many times, and I've, we've had this conversation, we'd go to the board and said, you know, whatever, regardless of what you do on, your, on this merge or whatever, we, yeah. we need to make this, have him a secure future if you haven't done this yet. Uh, some kind of retirement plan, some kind of 
whatever, some, some kind of severance. Some, severance. What are the guidelines and guardrails for that? I've never seen anything in writing, but just like, give me, you've got a lot of experience here. And I think this is one of the things that, that church leadership circles are usually horrible at. So like unpack some of what you've learned here that you could say, these would be great guidelines on how to have these conversations in the church leadership circles with sound ethics, but yet honor. Well, first of all, the ECFA, the organization where, where Warren Bird is the vice president, the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability, has got the best resources out there about boards and how to, you know, uh, work well with boards and what boards should be doing and all this. And this clearly is one of the things that boards should be doing. And so as me, as a third party, I could say to a board chairman, Let, let's look at the what, what has the church done in terms of a uh, retirement package, benefit package for your your lead pastor as, as well as all your staff. And um, so many times when when pastors will ask me, you know, when I'll say, well, what does you need to, you know, retire or to transition this church to another church? Sometimes I'll say, you're asking for too much. That's not realistic. Yeah, You, you will lose the respect that you have your board or people yeah. if you ask for that. Right. And so, but, you know, I, 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 there's a lot of resources out there, Leadership Network, ECFA, there's surveys about what's the reasonable salary ranges and benefit packages mm-hmm. uh, according to size of church and region of the country. Those are good. And years of service. And years of service. Those are good guidelines about what, what should be the range for a pastor yeah. in their salary now and what should they, what kind of benefits should they be getting. And if a church has been short on that, they ought to make that right before they merge and uh, with another church. Sometimes they don't have the resources to do it. And so sometimes the lead church pastor— um, uh, or the lead church will say, yes. you know, we want to help you make this transition. By the way, 79% of all joining church pastors in our survey ha- continue on in, a, in another role with that new okay. with the church. So that might be a way of helping solve sure. the problem is identifying a value-added role, a, a preaching role, or um, something that where there's an ongoing compensation from I, the lead church. I always church. recommend uh, you should give that pastor at least guarantee him a year's salary. That, their surveys was less than that. Was About it? six months. Okay. But either, either that's fine. A year, yeah. A year would sound right. Or, yeah, or I, some I of would them even think more. more. Yeah. And, um, but I, I think to me that that's honorable. That's honoring that person's service. Uh, it's give, and sometimes uh, I've had churches say, we don't even know what the role would be because we, we're not sure where the right fit is, but we'll still guarantee that salary and we'll figure this out. There's been a lot of honor in this process. Mm-hmm. And the fact that 79% continue on uh, at least for another year yeah. with that with the new merged church speaks i think volumes to the heart of the lead church to say we want to do right by this yeah. lead pastor and help them and and you know what the the joining church church members appreciate their lead pastor their joining pastor you know their pastor not being thrown on the bus well, or there's being, yeah there's a culture of honor and respect that that is unstated words aren't being used but actions are showing and um and value creation that there is a new level of ministry possibilities as a result of this merger. So I think oftentimes we neglect um, in in thinking transactionally about this, we can be myopic and neglect to think, what are we doing culturally? Um, and as we talk about that, it makes me think about uh, a topic that I think is often missed in these conversations because we're talking to elders and, and um, decision maker kind of executive team level leaders about mergers. What advice do you have to the staff who are along for the ride, but they're not making the decision? 
Well, that's one of the top five issues you also have to address is, okay, let's, we've, we've dealt with the, this, the senior pastor's yeah. transition. Yeah. Either he's going to retire and we're going to make sure he's got a decent retirement. Uh, he's going to um, be released because he's not retiring age. He wants to go do something else. And many times there's some financial gifts or whatever to help launch him into that other, or at least mm-hmm. helping him carry his salary for a few months while he's looking at a generous severance package. We yes. recommend being a generous severance package based on their years of service and all that sort of thing, the way they would do any senior pastor uh, transition. Or or they retain them and yeah. they offer them a job or yeah. some role. So now, let's say you're that ministry leader, him or her in the role, and you're being retained, but your whole world's changing, right? You, you, your job description is probably changing. Your job title's changing. You're, you might have to be packing up out of your office. And mo- when it feels so turbulent and you're not in the decision-maker role, what way can you increase your value as a staff member in that merger? In our book, I have a, a letter that I send to every recently merged joining pastor. And I share with them, here's the things going for now on the staff of a church that you used to lead the church, at least part of it. Uh, here's some recommended suggestions. Uh, be a team player. Uh, listen more than you talk, you yeah. know, in the staff meetings. Uh, there's about a dozen things that we list. Mm-hmm. Uh, be, a, be a team player. Don't foster disgruntled members of your former church, you know, uh, support the lead pastor and all that. I've had a church one time that committed two years salary, but the lead pastor, the joining pastor that Mm -hmm. joined, he was so toxic and so opinionated about how the church should be doing things. And it was a, we're talking a church of a couple hundred joining a church of a couple thousand, but that he he still saw, saw himself as the expert about how we should do church. Became so toxic that six months into it, that lead church said, you know, we're still going to honor our financial commitment to you, but we release you from the job. Not have you here. <laughs> well, so bring bring value. Just bring yeah, value. Yeah. Um, you know, the, I'm in my church right now. I help them with a with a transition to succession. The lead pastor now handed off the church of ten thousand to yes. a thirty seven year old uh, that he helped groom for ten years and develop, and he stayed on as a teaching pastor. And that's all he does. And he doesn't try to run the church. He doesn't try to tell the senior, the new lead pastor, what to do. It's that kind of mindset. Some, uh, if you're a high control and you can't let go, that's not going to have a good outcome. But if you, if you can release this and say, yeah. you know, I don't have to carry the weight of this anymore. My new lead pastor can do that. I just get to do what I'm really good at. And, um, and I'm just glad for that. So it's, it's 79% stay on in our, in, our, in our survey. You asked the question earlier, though, but what about the rest of the staff? That's the group that is the most resistant mm-hmm. to a merger. The lead pastor is usually figure, or the joining pastor has figured this out. What's you know with the other pastor? What sure. is, but what's going to happen to us? Now, for some, it's like, hey, this is great. This, I have an opportunity um, to grow with this church in a way I never would have before. Others, I'm going to lose my job. And others, this is my opportunity to. I, I've been waiting for an opportunity to leave. Now, what I recommend to most churches is. Many times there's redundancy. We just don't need two accountants, mm-hmm. you know, bookkeepers or two youth pastors or whatever. Uh, so many times, uh, typically what is recommended is that, hey, every, every candidate, every staff member can apply for a job. 
apply for the job they have now or for another job that that's available and we'll evaluate it. Meanwhile, if it, if there's not a job offer, then we will, we will exercise a very generous severance package to help you land in a place where you can flourish. Yeah. I think that's there's no good. guarantee. There's no guarantee. There's no guarantees, but uh, there's a lot of, uh, again, going back to honoring those in ministry. And I think there's just some good leadership lessons in there of that the mission of the church is not to employ people. And so we get to be employed in positions like that, but that's not the mission of the church. And when we subtly move toward employing people, really being this turf that we're protecting, we often lose sight of the, the ministry fruit. And I also think there's good leadership in saying that, hey, we made an obligation to continue your salary for a period of time. Mm-hmm. But if you're hurting the organization overtly or, or just through culture, um, it's a good leadership to just say, we're still going to honor our, our, our financial commitment here, but we can't have you in the room. We can't have you here. You need to take a break. And um, I think that's also just a recognition of how hard it can be um, to accept change, right? If you're one of the founders of the current way of doing things, any change makes you feel like somebody's calling your baby ugly, but we've got to hold that loosely and and just say, well, if we can't accept change now, when when can we ever, right? I've sometimes asked, um, what about mergers that failed? And I said, well, it depends what you mean by fail. Or, you know, what's merger success? Well, it depends what you mean by success. If you mean if if you define a merger as successful if everybody stayed and no staff left mm-hmm. or let go. If you were one of the people who left, Wrong or who, yeah. then uh, it was a failure to you. But but if that tr- for me, I define merger success is is at the end of the day, at the other side of a merger, is there a flourishing congregation now that didn't exist before? Um, I, I we have a little chart in our book that we talk about merger success is not, and then we have like five things. This is what it's not, and then yes. instead, this is what. It, Focus on, for example, merger success is not 100% retaining staff, church members, and attenders. It's retaining people who embrace a shared vision for the future. Merger success is not 100% approval of the members. It's 100% engagement of those who approve. It's uh, merger success is not saving a facility for emotional or nostalgic reasons. It's stewarding a facility for kingdom purposes. Uh, merger success is not preserving a church name. It's leveraging a church legacy. Yeah, that's absolute gold. It's not merger success is not maintaining the status quo. It's beginning a new life cycle or starting over with a new vision. Yeah. Looking forward, not looking in the rearview mirror. Well, Jim, I want to end there. That is actually one of the absolute richest highlights. That is wisdom when put to practice the right way. And I'm sure you've seen it done not, not properly that's helped you develop that list. Um, and what a, what a great way to get up every morning and say, how can God use me to do something new and different and to stretch and to lead others by, uh, by kicking off that list. So Jim, thank you so much. You are headed into this, this new season of life right now, and you're in full stride. Kicking off this, uh, the updated book is a great way, just a huge statement. So thank you guys for digging back in last fall with the research and 
writing this and republishing this book. It truly is a gift to the church. Thank you, Sean, for the opportunity to be with you today and uh, tell a little bit of this story. Awesome. Good to be here. Hey, y'all. So fun to share that episode with you. Jim's been important in my life and in my leadership, and I just appreciate his willingness to share his journey. Anytime you get somebody in their 60s who has been through three decades of ministry, I hope you all just give a pause and absorb the weight of that. Because as we alluded to, we've seen the highs and lows of ministry. We've seen the bright side of the church, and you've seen the underbelly of the church. And, and here's the deal. The church is full of us. It's full of me's and it's full of you's and therefore it's full of brokenness. And isn't that the picture that Christ gives us in the biblical model of Hosea loving Gomer? And there's so much depth to that. I go back to that almost monthly in my life and learn how to re-embrace the church and Christ's love and the amount of grace that he has for us. So listen, I'm getting sidetracked. But what I want to point you to here is the transparency that Jim brought into this conversation. And we have that kind of transparency through the ascentleader.org, which is where we gather leaders, typically in groups of six to eight, to live and learn together, to be a part of life and leadership together. And it typically happens in the living room of incredible mentors, people like Nikki Gumbel and N.T. Wright people like Herbert Cooper and Judd Wilhite who open their living rooms and open their lives to us and share with us and encourage us and develop us. If you're interested in being part of a cohort that navigates a space that's full of transparency, peer learning with incredible coaches and world-class mentors, I encourage you to check us out at theascentleader.org. In particular, if you're still listening here, which is probably about 85% of you guys at this point, I want to encourage you, if you're a transition leader, if you're a leader ages roughly 35 to 45 and you're taking the role of a new lead pastor of a church, we have a series of cohorts we're getting ready to start in the fall and winter, the fall of 2020 and the winter of 2021. I'd encourage you to apply, theascentleader.org. Hope you can join us there. Thanks. Thanks.